Good evening. Now we are, last week we were answering questions, and I was pleased to hear that the person who was listening liked the answers to the questions. I picked it up from only one string, so I was relieved that it was the right string. And if you weren't here last week, you'll have to go to the audio. You'll have to go to the internet and find out. So we are now working with, so I skipped around last time and skipped from 122, I skipped 122 last time and did 121 and 123 because they were answering his questions. But before I go back, did you have a question? Did you say you had a question? I do. Okay, offer it. We miss you. We had to resort to outsiders to ask us questions. <laughs> Swami starts to talk about time and space mm-hmm. and how mm-hmm. it's a delusion. And, and he, he explains it really well. And, mm-hmm. and then, so then he leads into this comment that I've heard many times over the years, and I really need a place to put it that is useful. He says... Uh, so that time and space don't mean anything. I'm terribly paraphrasing here. Time and space don't mean anything. So how long it takes you on the path is completely up to you. But, you know, with all the explanation in the background, when he got to that point, it was like, right, exactly. I mean, that's so true. I got it. And then he says, but uh, you're still in delusion, so time and space do mean something to you, and it's not that easy. And so I found myself going, you know, I don't know what to do with that. Because on one hand, I, I, I could sort of get it that, you, it, you know, how long it takes you on the path is really up to you. But on the other hand, but, you know. You know, actually, it's interesting because that is actually um, number 26. And I have not been looking forward to to number 26. No, that's all right. I don't mind. We're, we're kind of doing these all in a group here, and it really doesn't make any difference. I remember, and it was many, many years ago, decades ago, when Swamiji had that picture in his mind that if there was no movement, there would be no time. And I remember him coming to some uh, class that he was giving, you know, and he was so eager to share with us this revelation that he had and I, I, can, I still picture in my mind, because he tried to draw it for us, you have just this planet, and if nothing ever moves, then no time passes, because there's no way to measure time if nothing is moving. I didn't get it then, and I still don't get it now. I'm hoping when I get to, I, to 126, then suddenly there'll be a revelation in my mind, and I'll actually be able to see that. I, it seems so obvious, and I've heard him say it dozens of times since then. I've read it. For some reason, I just, my brain doesn't really quite get it, even though it should get it. So I'm going to just pause there for a second. However, when you were saying what you were saying just now about how long it takes for us to be realized, just depends on our sense of time, there is no time, a whole other answer was coming into my head because what you actually asked, fortunately, was not really to explain the concept, which puts us in deep waters over our head, uh, without a snorkel, but just down in there. Uh, but you asked, well, how can we think about this in a useful way? And it, it kind of, this is sort of a, a mind trick that I've shared before when I, some of you who received the letters that I used to be writing, I stopped writing for a while, have stopped writing for a while. Um, 
And one of them was the big questions. Why did God make the world the way they made it? And all of those, all of those different answers. Let me think, how did that relate? Oh, and my answer to it was that somehow I'm not troubled by those questions. I just have, I have working hypotheses that work for me. And what I was feeling when you asked that question, what you're really asking about is not living in the now. Because the real answer to the question of how long does it take us to realize God is that if we're, if we're living in the now at the moment, whether we're realized or not, how far we have to go and how far we have come and what might lie ahead, all of those are predicated on moving out of the experience you're having now and anticipating an experience that's going to come later, which not only plays into the delusion of time, but in itself plays strongly against your self-realization. Because the more you're not um, concentrated on what's happening, but are living in a fantasy world of, of other alternatives, then to that extent you're, you're missing the moment. And the whole uh, fact of realization is to not miss the moment. It's amazing if one really thinks about how much of our own lives we don't participate in because whatever is happening, our attention is actually in the past or in the future. And the very fact of being in the past or in the future is part of the definition of our lack of realization. Not only because we are buying strongly then into the delusion of time, but we're also not concentrating and not conscious in the moment. We're blanking out. So I think the, the most useful reality for time being unreal for us as we live in our present state of consciousness where we're still trapped in it is that what do I think is going to happen then that isn't happening now? And and if we can sort of like, you know, read the samadhi poems and imagine that we're going to feel that way. But we're never going to get there from here without first being here. And the, the deep resistance to being here, whatever that might mean, whatever's in front of you, whatever state of consciousness, whatever people and situations and problems have to be solved, that itself is what's binding you. If you're, if you're just uh, utterly surrendered, but fully consciously so. I, I mean, not just, well, I guess it's the best I've got. I might just as well enjoy it. It's not, it's not like we go down. It's like we're, we're, we're as much as we can possibly be in this moment. And then the question of time, because see, that's what I sort of flashed on when I heard you say that, was why would you worry about it then? Because if you're if you're fully aware insofar as you are able to, everything is about feeling, um, everything is about self-worth in an odd way because what makes us uneasy in the moment is often that we, we're afraid about the moment. We're afraid that we're not fully involved. We're afraid that we're not committed. We're afraid that we're not doing our best. But if you're, if you're completely resting in yourself and realizing that everything that could be done is being done right now, then you don't have any anxiety about what's coming. How could you? Because what else could you do? 
Um, it's been an interesting experience, and I mentioned it a little, this whole project of buying this farm, which is still, you know, unresolved. I've been uh, more relaxed about it as a, as a huge undertaking. I've, I've been more relaxed in the midst of a huge undertaking on this one than I've ever been on anything we've ever done. And I keep tracing it back to the fact that everything that we could do, we're doing. And once you've done your best, then that's nishkam karma. You have to just leave it after that. So much of the inability to surrender the fruits is an anxiousness about your own part in that. Um, And even if your own part, see, what we imagine is that someday we'll become perfect in the way we do things, and then at that point we'll relax. But uh, that very anxiety is, generally speaking, the biggest obstacle rather than just the happy acceptance of uh, the karmic situation of the moment. So you dissolve time yourself. You dissolve it in your own perception because it ceases to be an issue to you. And... That really is what it's all about, isn't it? I mean, time doesn't exist unless it's an issue to you. Because there's no inherent reality, but we make it an issue and then it becomes an issue. That's why you will be realized as quickly as you want to be unless you don't want to be. (laughs) It'll happen immediately unless it doesn't. But it doesn't... If we're joyful in the minute, in the moment, we we don't need to move out of this moment to find joy. Take care of the minutes, Master said, and the incarnations will take care of themselves. Does that make sense? I just made that up just now, so I hope that it did. I've been dreading that whole um, aphorism because there it is, the unmoving planet, and then there's no time. I'll try to, I'll try to get it. Yes, Chittambar, pass the... Uh-huh. What Swami said when he was a child, he would go into superconsciousness to go to sleep. And he said when he went back into superconsciousness, it was the same time. No time had passed. So no time had passed. Right. So given that, there is no time. Mm -hmm. So he says, and you can sort of see that. That's all the, the wheel that I've described many times. If you're standing in the center, the wheel can just rotate all around you, but your place never changes in relation to it. It's only when we're riding the edge that we have this feeling that we're moving all around. So the answer to that is to just move into the... I have, a, I have a spiritual path, I have a guru, I have a spiritual family, I have a spiritual practice. I'm living now as best I can ever live. There is no... There's no discontent. There's no restlessness. Uh, there's no... Self, uh, self-flagellation that requires that I have to do something other than I'm doing. All very tricky, but very important. And that's, that's the useful answer, I think. You know, it's, it's interesting because I say that these questions don't bother me, and so therefore I don't really have thoughtful answers for the things I don't understand. But in fact, I've made very serious accommodations to them. And so I've answered them on the level that I can answer them, and I'm perfectly conscious of the fact that I can't answer them on a higher level than that. You know, standing here and being cheerful 
is not eternity and I, one united ray. <laughs> but it's the only way I can imagine getting there. Yeah. I don't mind being master's last. I'm in the line. <laughs> I have a related question. I hope I'm not missing the point. Um, you often talk about time as being circular and the point of center being uh, the point of timelessness and we being equidistant from that at at any point on the rim. Right. So that's, that's I think, uh, an image I've probably heard somewhere else as well. But what's, what's probably something that makes me think about it is it's complex enough to understand that the the cause and effect relationship and the linearity of time is an illusion. But when you talk, talk of it as circular, does that mean we actually come to the same point again and again as we move? Or Because it's, it's complex enough to think of it as linear and being an illusion. And when we think of it being a circular and being an illusion, it maybe I'm overthinking no, this. No, actually, <laughs> I, I've actually, I've seen that implication that we don't, um, well, let me phrase it this way. I was, when I took a a ride to Ananda Village once with one of our attorneys. This was like during the lawsuit and we were going to do a program up there. And so I, he had me in the car, so he asked me a lot of philosophical questions on a more... Uh, it wasn't John Parsons who'd been with us longer. It was one of our other lawyers. But he asked me the obvious question, do we incarnate progressively in time? Or do we... You know, can you be here now and then be in the Civil War in your next incarnation? And Swamiji said no. That no, you don't go back. Once, once you're in a certain progress of time, you keep going forward in that. So there's a certain truth in that. You don't suddenly meet yourself. You, know? <laughs> you don't suddenly bump up against who you used to be on the wheel of the tire. I think part of the problem is that, okay, for me, I'm drawing these images from the bottom. Like one of the reasons why we need a guru is because when we're climbing the mountain from the bottom... We may think that this is a good path and it's going to take us somewhere, but we can't really see the whole thing from the top. So this, actually, Swami drew this image, but I've seized it. But I've seized it. I'm looking up at it. I'm not looking down on it. So there's probably nuances from looking down on it that he could talk about, like that planet where nothing moves. <laughs> that it's just so clear to him when he told that one. Wow, wasn't that wonderful? Uh-huh. I just, total blank, total blank. I didn't even have the nerve to... to I mean, because I asked him to explain it, he just explained it again. You know, and that's... <laughs> still meant nothing. But, so the, I think it's partly that the image is not completely valid. But, see, once you're in the center of it, you're standing in eternity. I can't really answer that. You know, if everything is happening at the same time, if past, present, and future are all here at the same time, I think that we're still being too linear about the wheel meeting the wheel. <laughs> I think it, there's no... Uh, there's no finitude to the wheel. I think that's the issue. The wheel, <laughs> we, imagine it, we imagine it linear, just round. That's what's happening. It's, we've taken linear and we've just curved it. That's what you've actually done, so that we think it meets at a certain point. But I think it just all emanates from, e- from the eternity. And I think that's more accurate than it's actually clinging to the rim. <laughs> You've taken that little strip of paper and we've fooled it and said, look, I'm not thinking in a linear way. I'm thinking in a different way. <laughs> and we've stapled it together up here. But uh, time is not fooled. Yes. If we were able to understand this, we wouldn't have any problem understanding it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, if we were, yeah. The, Vice versa. This is Lit- Rama, uh, Vivekananda's question, why did God make creation? 
the level of consciousness that asks the question is not capable of understanding the answer, which is like, that's like a, a, a class giver's dream answer, but you can't really use it. You have to use it very selectively <laughs> because it, in, in the wrong hands, it can come out very badly. <laughs> okay, did that help? That we've just pasted the linear piece of paper into a circle and that? But I do think emanate is the, what you want. That's where everything emanates from the same source. Because it's, you know, it's, it's manifested like this. It's not, it's not like, and then it just goes. It doesn't actually hang out on the wheel like that. <laughs> Thank you. I was hanging out on the wheel. And, you know, when I said we're equidistant, because we're, we're moving toward that, you know, it's levels of relative levels. Okay, anything else? Well, that was good. Thank you for sort of throwing me into the deep end of time. Okay. And here's the, this next one. is also about time, actually. Now we're going to do uh, aphorism 122, which says the time required for success, and the success is the highest state is attained through. The time, and then it lists, that's what 20 and 21 tell us, how we attain the highest state. 20 was with through faith, will, mindfulness. We talked about that. And then with keen and one-pointed practice. And then the time required for success depends also on whether one's practice is, it's like a salsa here, mild, medium, or intense. Yeah, how much chili is there in our practice? Mild, medium, or intense. Sometimes you read this and you think, what was the Sanskrit that said mild, medium, or intense? Whoa, look at that. There's a, there's a Sanskrit word for silly. Did you know that? Yeah. Silly. There's a Swami. This is, uh, you know, this is me from America, but there was a Swami in India called Murk Ananda. And the word Murk essentially means silly. My Indian friend here is nodding his head. And someone said to Murk Ananda, that's no name for a Swami. He says, you don't know me. <laughs> <laughs> So it's, a, it's always been sort of a name we keep back there. Murkananda, if all else fails, that's what we'll just call ourselves and we'll go forward. <laughs> so anyway, mild, medium, or intense. Okay, then Swami really um, talks about just the fact of tension. And he talks about physical or mental. I think the conversation we were just having is about tension. Because the, what moves us off of the present is when we become tense. Isn't that so? If we're, if we're in a, a complete state of relaxation, I, I mean, even if you just think in the most, I love when you can just bring the teachings down to the most um, practical way. Just today, David and I went over to the coast, and we were exploring around where our property is with that foolish thought that I had that there was another road. So we took... The, the road that's just right at the gate there that goes, turns out into the orchid farm, which everybody but me knew. I kept saying, no, no, it's not that road, it's another road, but there is no other road, that's the only road. And then we followed it, and it goes way up to the top of the ridge, where it ends at a locked gate, and it's completely useless. And it's, I mean, for our purposes, and it's a long, winding road like this. I'm coming to a real point here. David was looking at everything, and so we drove that road really slowly, really, really slowly. And there was just a piece of me that 
wanted it to drive wanted to drive it faster and I kept thinking to say something like why don't you drive faster then I asked myself why what difference does it make we have absolutely no agenda today we're just enjoying ourselves it's beautiful and for reasons unknown to me he feels like going three miles an hour so just let him go three miles an hour but the fact is that I could feel the tension you know the 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 discontent in the moment was manifesting itself as a certain tension in me. You know, we're riding along really slowly and it gets physical. You lean forward, you're inside the car. <laughs> and you think if you lean forward that maybe something will go faster. But, and so I had to really just consciously, literally lean back in the car, just look out the window and enjoy the reality of what was happening in the moment and let go of tension. I wouldn't have thought of it then, but I'm thinking of it now. Because somehow I was anticipating something and I couldn't just let it happen the way it's happening. And even when we want to put out profound spiritual effort, if that effort becomes tense, then the nature of tension is that it's pulling against something, right? And what we have to understand about realization, which is very tricky, is that you're not pulling against anything. You're actually... I mean, what we're doing all the time now is we're pulling against. You know, the ego is gripping like this. And it, we need to, that's why we use words like surrender. You know, letting go. All of those things because the ego is holding on. I often think of it like, um, you know, those cartoons of the diving bells. Where you, you had the, So there's this little diving bell and, the, you know, the a tremendous force is required to keep the ocean from flowing into that. So we are this little diving bell of our ego and it takes tremendous force to hold the infinite at bay. And so we spend a whole lot of our time holding, holding that from coming in. And all of the various delusions associated with being ego-identified, time just being one of them, are all the ones that we're just holding with all that tension. And just even the ability to meditate. I mean, what makes it hard for us to meditate? Well, after I meditate, I'm going to go have dinner, go talk to my wife, go take a walk, you know, work on this project. So we sit down to meditate, and all of a sudden, instead of being right there in the meditation, in the Kriya breath, or the mantra, or the prayer, we're half somewhere else. Because we're here and we're there. It's, it's tension, isn't it? So what he's writing here, and it's the most important thing, is, you know, it, it's, it is important not to let effort be defined by tension, physical or mental. This, in our times especially, seems a difficult teaching. So mild, he talks about being somewhat passive. Medium is relatively easy. But intense effort requires wholehearted dedication. Um, with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Isn't that, that's in our festival of light, isn't it? Thou shalt love the Lord thy God. That's my Jewish upbringing. Swami throws that in there. Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, with all thy mind, with all thy soul, and with all thy strength. You would say that in the Jewish temple. That came right out of my childhood. Whew! <laughs> I couldn't think of the festival of light. All of a sudden, I'm just repeating the way the rabbi said it. You know, but when we do it, I choose with all my heart, with all my mind, with all my soul, and with all my strength, I choose thy light. What we're trying to do there is exactly what he's saying here, that this spiritual effort is not going to be mild. 
This is going to be with everything that I have. So I think the way we want to understand this, he gives us the way to understand it, heart, mind, soul, and strength. And isn't it marvelous that every week in the Festival of Light we do that? And why do we not hear that every week in the Festival of Light? Because we're only half present when we're doing it. Isn't that so? Half of our mind is somewhere else thinking what's coming next, repeating it over, you know, all the different ways. It's, it's more easy for me to be present because if I'm standing in the front and I actually have to read the words. I had the most interesting experience of Be Here Now when I recorded the audio book of the book I wrote about Swami Kriyananda. I'm just realizing how this relates in the festival too. Because in order to really do that with magnetism, I had to be present for every word that I read. Otherwise, you could hear it. You know, you, you, would, you would hear the word, but there wouldn't be a full commitment of energy. And I realized, especially because I'm a fast reader, and this is a habit from childhood, when you're reading especially to yourself, you're, you're anticipating what's coming. Your, your eye is taking in what's already there. So even though you're on this concept, you're also on the concept to come. Even when people read out loud, they're on the concept to come. And people reading out loud up here are often on the concept to come, and therefore the one they're on doesn't have full magnetism. But it was a, it was a real act of faith to believe that the next word was there. And I actually was, I was emotionally conscious of the fact that it made me slightly anxious to just look at that word and then just really believe that the next word would be there if I didn't just lean into it a little bit. I mean, they were my own sentences. I knew that they were all there, and they were right there on the book. But the mind is always slipping out of the moment. And so the intensity of our spiritual effort, which will shorten the time, is that if we let go of the concept of time and just surrender ourselves into it. Isn't that interesting? It's, it's really fun, but it, it's the opposite of tension. So medium, mild, mild, medium, intense is without the word tense. It's, 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 it, I mean, I know all of you, I'm sure, because I've had these moments too, when just everything was aligned one way or another. And, for example, I remember, maybe it was, oh, I think it was oddly because I was a little ill. And so my physical body was just very, it wasn't causing, it, it was, the, it wasn't causing me any anxiety because I didn't have enough energy to do anything. So it was just very happy just to sit there. And someone came over to talk to us, and they were a person whose rhythm of speech is slower than my rhythm, which is often a challenge for me. But I was completely conscious of the fact that I was in absolutely no hurry. And just their rhythm was just, I was perfectly at ease with their rhythm. And I thought to myself, why am I not always like this? And what it was, was there was no tension. Because as long as this took was just fine, what else was there in the universe to do? except give complete attention to someone. This is how Swami talked about how Master was. This is how Swami is. You know, just whatever is being done, that's all that's being done. That's, that's intensity of effort. Janambar has a question or a comment? I think it was 03 or maybe 05 when Swami sat here and greeted 350 people, one after the other. Yeah. And I was sitting right here. There was nowhere else I wanted to be. Nothing else I wanted to be doing. Yeah, it's exactly right. See, he would do that for us, Swamiji's presence. 
which is, you know, one of the, the slight concerns that we all have about the fact that he's not going to be in the physical body floating back into our world again, is that he was the, the cosmic reset button. You know, just where he was, you've got to practice all of these principles. I've been practicing that. I, I did get to practice that for decades, literally. Whenever I was where he was, I really, there was no other place in the universe to be. That's exactly right. Even, I, I remember thinking, the last few years of his life, a few of the times when we went to Goa with, uh, to be where he was, sometimes there was a large crowd, sometimes there was a small crowd. The uh, resort there, it's, it's at, at least five acres. It might be on ten acres. Um, and it's, it's on, the, on the ocean in a very long line. And Swami stayed in some, there were these little individual units that had several rooms in them at one end, the dining area was here. So there was always a, a walk of some, some distance. I mean, I, I could, by myself, I could cover it in a couple of minutes. But with Swami's pace, sometimes it would take us at least five, maybe ten minutes to just go from where he was staying to the dining room. Because increasingly, but he always wanted to walk it, even though it was possible to get a ride, because it was healthy for him. So he would walk extremely slowly sometimes, really, really slowly. I mean, at a pace that, normally would have just driven me crazy. But I, I noticed that day after day, we just sort of amble along, you know, at the pace of an, a very elderly man who couldn't walk very well. And I never felt the slightest bit impatient. I wasn't even aware that we were walking slowly. And, and I, I realized that about halfway through that trip. And I thought, you know, what a... It's all a shift in your consciousness. We think... These conditions are inherent, but they're not at all. It's just the way we've oriented our mind in the moment because of what you were saying. I was completely attuned to him wherever he was. That's where I wanted to be. So there was, there was no tension. There was no pulling in another direction. And so we would just move along at that glacial pace and then sometimes, you know, even stop to contemplate something before we just move along and never once thought about it. Interesting, except in the opposite, like I'm saying now. There's the illusion of time, you see. There was movement, but not much of it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Asha, you had um, said uh, earlier a number of times that one of the secrets of Swami's uh, amazing ability to get things done was that he just put his mind in completely at whatever was at hand, and if it was to write a chapter or, or give a piece of counseling, it was, he was so totally present that it, exactly. wasn't, it wasn't a big tapasya for him to get it done. He just was there until it was until solved. Until it was finished. He did not multitask. I never knew Swami to do more than one thing at a time, and he was emphatic about that. And sometimes I just carelessly would try to get his attention for something else. And without, without chastising me, he would utterly ignore me, just utterly. You know, he just simply would not be drawn off what he was doing merely because I was flitting around like a mosquito trying to get his attention for something else. It just wasn't in him. And that was, I put in my book about how he, he knew this phone number of this realtor because he glanced at it once. And Padma, who was very good with numbers, said, how could you know that number? He, she said, I just... You know, just sort of flashed it in front of you. He said, yes, but I concentrated completely when I looked at it. 
And that, and that was the answer I, I talked about the time when I realized I was giving the same, the same subject. I was giving a class series on the same subject in three different cities when I lived at the village, and I would drive down, and I would teach in Sacramento and San Francisco and in Palo Alto, and I was, you know, class number one of the series, and then class number two, and then class number three, but of course I have no outlines. And so the audiences in each city were very different, so it was the same subject, but the classes were extremely different. And after I finished the third one, and I was getting ready to go back, I just had this realization, oh my gosh, I haven't the foggiest idea what I taught in those classes. Or maybe it was even before I started teaching. But I said to Swamiji, because he used to do that all the time, and he, of course, we, we teach the way he taught, which is extemporaneously. He said, oh, you remember. He said, you, you won't have any trouble remembering as long as you are completely present when you're teaching. Oh, that's no problem. <laughs> but in truth, for the most part, I am and was. And so I, I couldn't remember it in the abstract then I would just sit at home and try to think, what did I say in Sacramento? What did I say in San Francisco? But as soon as I was standing there and saw the people in front of me, I, it was like the whole thing came back to me. And then I could remember, at least sufficiently well, to know essentially where I should go. I mean, not completely. I had to sometimes say, did I say that? Did we talk about this? But it wasn't, it wasn't the blank that I thought it was going to be. Also partly because, well, if you talk as much as I do, you do your best to forget what you said. I mean, imagine if you were just replaying all these tapes in your head. So part of it is that I, you do blank the slate because you, you want to be talking in the moment to the people in the room. You don't want to be telling them something that worked really well yesterday. You want to know where people are in the moment. So that, that's also part of the necessity. If you just think, oh, this was clever, and then you say it again, all of a sudden you're... At least the way Swami trained us. This has been the way we've been trained. Well, were we anywhere that that was relevant? I think so. I think that was all about mild, mild, medium, intense, right? Yes. Forgive me, Patanjali, for, for likening you to salsa, but nonetheless, I couldn't help it. <laughs> um, uh, this practice of, deep, of relaxing into right. the present and noticing tension mm-hmm. arising has is, been a powerful practice for me, and, but I find it really hard to have the the intense salsa activity and be able to also do the other. Well, actually, it's the opposite, Karen, because when you're really intensely active, you're you're so engaged in what you're doing, you're not thinking about anything else. No, but there is some there's 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 some physical tension behind it that with when I'm working with intense energy and focus, which I do quite often, right. I, there is an underlying driving push under it that I think is tension-related. Okay, let me think so about it's that. it's not easy. Because I've seen Swami... When Swami's intent, he's really intent. Um, virtually the last days that I saw him, he, he re-edited the entire book of Love Perfected, Love Divine. He, he woke up at 3 in the morning and he finished it at 4 in the afternoon. And he just took a few minutes, you know, to have lunch. And, right. and I mean, there was I, I a, can look just like that for long periods, but the underlying condition, I think has some driving tension in well, it. Well, what is... Okay, if you're fully... Are you, is your mind wandering? No, not at all. Are you anxious about the result? No. Um, are you... But I still am aware of if there's a physicality. If, if I keep that pace up for 
10 hours, two days, three days, there's a real, there's a depletion at the end of that that is quite noticeable to me. But I've, now this is the only reason I hesitate, I mean, actually, I know what you're saying, because I find that same, okay. I've seen Swamiji collapse at the end of such a thing, so that's why I was pausing for a minute. After a period of time where he works with that intensity, then he'll just go, Phew. I'm really tired. So, and, and you know, as I do, that he would often take breaks or he would often, he would always, he was so funny. Gee, I don't know why I'm so tired. And then the people around him would enumerate, you know, what he'd done. And I've seen him also, I wouldn't exactly call it tension, tension but you would call it intensity that is also manifesting through his body where there is just, there's, there's no space for anything else. And if it's really going well, you're channeling from a higher source, too. So I'm, I'm actually just trying to analyze it, trying to think about, is it unpleasant in the moment or only in retro... Oh, yeah. Um, no, really the question, is that okay consciousness that, that's happening? I don't know. Because when, when I'm in a more receptive place, there's a lot more physical relaxation happening when there's that... But I think that dramatic is required, and I think that dramatic is positive. I'm going on the simple fact that I've seen it in Swamiji so many times, and it'll manifest um, as just, I mean, impatience would be the word, absolute impatience with interruption. And, you know, just a a moving through that there's there's no room for anything else because this is what has to happen. And everything that is manifested in the world has to be pulled down from a higher source, and that takes a determined, concentrated energy. In fact, I've been thinking lately, because I, this, this, these questions and answers that I've been turning into a book, the editing of those has, has turned out to be much more time-consuming and more difficult than I thought it was going to be. Difficult not in the sense of, gee, I don't know how to do it, but difficult in that it's really hard work, you know, to... to and there's not the exhilaration of creativity. It's just really hard work. And I remember how many times Swamiji said it takes, it's really hard work to write well. And he would talk about editing particularly is really hard work. And, I, I, and, and that's about um, holding your will with enough force that you don't begin to lose the inspiration. Remember how Swami talked about um, the fact that his version of the St. Francis prayer had the same opening notes that the song that was written by the singer Donovan. But he said that Donovan got the first notes, but then let his energy drop, and so he couldn't sustain the inspiration, and then the song just kind of peters away. Whereas Swami was able to sustain the inspiration all the way through. Um, so I would certainly say that the value of that determined force far outweighs whatever slight aberration you might have. And I would let the aberration correct itself over time uh, rather than in any way interrupt that flow. But I think the physical fatigue is just a fact because um, it takes so much energy uh, to manifest. And, And most of the time, people do not put out that much energy, and that's why they don't manifest 
or they don't manifest that well. They put out a little and they think that's enough. And Swamiji was always showing us how much was really required to do it well. Does that, that was a very good question. Yeah. Um, my experience is more, more in sadhana than in, than in my work life that, that correlates, I think, where uh, lackluster meditations, I can feel kind of relaxed and not very focused. And, but if I have a really good meditation where something really feels like it happened, I'm, my body is not relaxed. Hmm. My body is absolutely, well, actually rigid. Uh-huh. Um, and so when I come out of that, uh-huh. I, I come out in a slumping, relaxing kind of thing. But the, the highest effort was with a kind of a tension. So you'd, I, I would say there was a body tension, but that wasn't, it wasn't bad. It was actually a sign of something good happening. I, I think that's the subtlety of learning how to put out maximum energy without having it spill over into physical tension. I think that is just a fact. And in the meantime, you know, that holding yourself, we have to hold ourselves because that's one of the ways that we get the energy focused. If we don't hold ourselves, then there's no energy focused. Yeah, I think that's true, exactly. Yeah. Because, you know, tension for me doesn't help in meditation. No, it doesn't as a rule. Uh Yeah, so that was the question, the whole... So talk about tension, because if I have a, a deep experience, I don't have a body, I'm gone. Right. And so whether there's tension or not just does not even show up. Right. So tension for me doesn't work. Right. But you have to be solidly focused. So Relaxed, relaxed concentration, relaxed total concentration is not the same as tension, and that, that's where he starts. It's very hard. When, I'm, when we're teaching people to meditate, it's very hard to explain to them how you can have complete energy without yeah. that. I mean, part of it is a little having to do with what you, whether, you're, whether it's ego or devotion. Um, I remember many, many years ago when they, when they got all the celebrities together and they, they made that recording of we are, the, we are the World. Remember, it was for Africa or something they did that. And then somebody made a video of it and then somebody thought I would like to see the video. So they, they showed me the video of it. And people... And all these different famous folks each had their 15 seconds to sing exactly the same line that everybody else was singing, so they had to give it their all. And without an exception, they all created energy by creating physical tension. And they they sang, you know, just squinching up their faces and squinching their hands and twisting their bodies and squeezing their medullas. I mean, it was comical. And, you know, just a lot of them were just hurling their heads back and forth because the medulla was just twitching like this, trying to be their moment. Not one of them thought, realized that they could have so much more energy if they just released all of that. I mean, it was so exaggerated that it made me realize, you know, oftentimes you'll be sitting in meditation and you realize that you've gotten yourself into a position like that or something. You know, the energy will start... In fact, there are certain people that, you know, that you meditate with a lot who have characteristic positions that they end up in. Or you'll find yourself and you'll just suddenly realize, you know, that you've done something. And you have to sort of let it, let it go again. But it's, that's why they call it practice. <laughs> yeah. I'd like to tell a story on myself briefly. Um, I was singing 
uh, Karen was coaching. There was a group of a little ensemble, one of our one of our um, Sunday morning ensembles, and Karen just made the comment, "Biraj, don't move, don't be waving around. <laughs> just think you're Swami, uh-huh. saying as if you were Swami." Uh-huh. And uh, a week later, I got a chance to do one of the one of the numbers with just a couple of us, and. I've never had so many comments about um, you weren't there, uh-huh. and I was do I I w- I just tried to imagine how would Swami have been? He would be twitching and moving, and <laughs> he would just be in the spine, yeah, exactly and, and right. it seems to have worked. Well, you can you can work on it from the outside. That's exactly right. You know, the, the symptom is this, but sometimes if you control the symptom, you actually shift the inside also, unless you're creating more tension. But yeah, exactly. I mean, Swami, when he would sing, you know, he'd just open his mouth. That would be like no other part of him would become engaged. He'd just open his mouth. It's quite, it was quite something to see because he knew there was more if there was less of him. Exactly. But it's not, that's not so easy. We all face it. But it's, that's the fun of it. Even though there's a certain impatience to be God realized, we're having a fairly good time. You know, it could be worse. <laughs> All right. Unless there's other comments, we'll take a short break. All right. Okay. Sai Ganesh was asking a question during our break, but I think I'd rather do it in the class. So go ahead. When you were talking about intensity, I think I actually had the exact same question as Karen, but mine was a little different in the sense that um, even I find it easy to work with intensity, but it is always with a kind of tension that I'm able to bring that intensity and get things done. And when I actually, but there's also a lot of anxiousness to it. There's, there's, there's a lot of uh, things that you would associate with tension. And when I try to be calm, it's just, it's just theoretical for me to think that I, I have more energy, but the way I actually get energy is through tension. Mm-hmm. And that way I'm, I'm, I don't know whether it's, I, I understand it's probably not the right kind, but I'm trying to understand if tension in itself, can give intensity in a way, or, or how the, to correct it, if not. That's the procrastinator's method. You know, <laughs> like, if you have to do it, finally you will. There's a, a writer who said, thank heaven for writing deadlines, otherwise I'd never get my housework done. <laughs> 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 so, <laughs> there's a certain, like, building yourself, backing yourself into a corner, which is not exactly what you're talking about, but there, there is a it, uh, the Tomasic force sometimes has to be just... But what I was actually thinking, though, is when you were saying that, and I, that's why I wanted you to ask it here, I mean, we do the energization exercises, and the way we first create energy is that we literally create energy by creating tension. We're trying to learn to draw energy in, and how do we do that? We, you know, tense, tense, harder and harder... Swamiji says the only country where you can't say tense as hard as you can is in Germany <laughs> because they have so much willpower that they'll hurt themselves by their tension. But mostly you, you know, low, low, medium, and high, and you bring the tension and you show people tense, you know, tense your arm and then see how much more energy you have. So it's not an entirely mistaken idea that you can get energy through tension. There's, there's different ways. But what people often don't really watch as carefully as they ought to in the energization exercise is that after you create that tension, you consciously release it and you leave the energy 
but you, you remove the tension. The tension is the first stage to finding the energy. But what we're actually trying to do with the energization exercises, and this is why, and this is always the challenge of the second meditation course, is to persuade people, what the heck does this have to do with meditation? Is that the problem in meditation is that we do not have control over our energy. That we... we, we are not comfortable physically, and we don't have control over our mental energy. We try to put our concentration at the spiritual eye, and it shoots off to lunch and dinner. It just, we, we, can't, we can't hold, we can't decide where our energy is going to be focused and hold it there. And so we practice by this, what is really actually very gross by comparison, which is my arm is limp, and then my arm is tense, tense, tense. But when it finally reaches that maximum point of tension... That is not the point. The point is then to say, look, by my willpower I tensed it, and by my willpower I also relax it. And so we find that it's, we can bring it, we can release it, we can manifest it in a certain way, we can have it in a certain way. And so the energization exercises are really a key um, practice for you to get that away from the thought that it has to be tense to have the energy. Um, and the tension will actually working with the physical body, there's a lot of studies that people have done about how actually creating that tension in the physical body actually benefits the body in many different ways. It does physiological things that are helpful. I remember Ram Bhakta pointed this out first because he's a runner, that if you do energization after you do a hard workout, it takes the lactic acid out of your muscles and that your, your muscles are not as sore afterwards. And it's an ideal practice after you've strained the body because then you won't be a sore the next day from that, because it just helps it in all these different ways. So I think, just specifically, for you to kind of really pay attention to the energization exercises, just from the point of view of the relationship and energy and tension, that's why at the end of it we do this one with, you know, absolute total relaxation. And, you know, a lot of times people, because people get into habits like we all do, you know, but you're not, it's not a question of that. It's the idea that now we're fully energized and we just feel all that energy, but now we're, we're doing it without any tension at all. We're not pushing anything. And we're just enjoying that flow of energy. Um, I mean, I think that's one part of it to, to begin with. The other part of it is really, I mean, tension is the ego separating itself out from the universe and creating its flow of energy uh, in the sense that I have to generate it rather than it's there for me just to open to. Swami often talks about the hose, that you can create intensity in the water by narrowing the opening. If you narrow the opening, then the jet of water will have more intensity. Um, but he said the other way to have, the, have it more intensity is to turn more water on at the tap. And then you can get a whole lot more to flow through it that way than you can ever do just by crimping the little bit that you have. So I would think in your specific situation that you should experiment in situations that are easier. And in as much as it's a big lifelong habit, and I believe that you're a highly productive man, it would be a little dangerous to start at your job. You know, just a little bit like Swami when he was giving a lecture and wanting to let God speak through him, and then just went into silence to see what would happen. I can just sort of see you, you know, kind of sitting around at your office, and 
I'm practicing being calm, you know. (laughs) Pretty soon you'll be calm in the unemployment line, so I don't really think that's a really good idea. But I suspect that there's lots of areas in your life. I'm, I'm, I'm suggesting this also because I've learned certain very important ways of working and doing things by first learning them in areas where there, I, had, I had much less egoic involvement. The first thing I actually, the first thing in my life I actually learned to do in, by, by an intuitive flow was cooking. And that was a, a transference from Swamiji to me of an understanding of how to cook, which he accomplished in a three-day weekend by just having me cut fruit with him while he was making fruit salads mostly. But one of the reasons I was able to learn that and do it was because in my particular value system, cooking was a zero. It just, I mean, I was intellectually oriented and there were many, many things that I worried about doing well and cooking was not one of them. So I could just kind of do it because there was nothing at stake. But after I, I learned to do that, I, I, that gave me a, like a, an actual experience of a certain kind of flow that it, I took me many years to transfer it to, to very important areas of my life, but I could always hearken back to that. Um, I learned patience and about the law of karma when I was 10, and I, I learned to sew. Because it was just, it was a very simple relationship. You do it lousy, you have to pull it out, or it looks terrible, that there is no shortcut. And it was, again, it was like, I wanted to learn to sew, but I didn't have any self-esteem related to it. And so it just came out bad, and I just was very impersonally able to observe that the tendency to, to, make, to do sh- shortcuts and do schlocky work just comes around and bites you in the end. Um, now, it's not the same as what we were talking about, but I suspect if you find other areas in your life and you start practicing, even, you know, just deliberately practicing, you know, this tense. But what you need, you see, is another image because you have to see yourself in relation to this flow of energy. You have to see yourself in relation to the infinite expression. When I was, when Swamiji asked me to write the book about miracles and answered prayers, which was a book he, he gave me to write, because I wrote the one book about him and I just was not doing any more writing. And he would constantly ask me if I was finished with volume two and I hadn't even touched it. And he was watching me not write again, which was a cycle we'd been through before leading up to that book. So he just showed up with the manuscript. I was going to write this, but I don't want to hear you write it like this. And it was not a point where I could say, thank you very much, sir, but I don't think I will. It was just, yes, there was no, it was Sister Gyanamanta's yes, and figure out later how to do it. Later, in the privacy of my own bedroom, I said to my husband, this is the last book I would ever choose to write. I have like, it's so not me, you know. It's just like, I just have no interest in writing this book at all. But here it is. He's given it to me, and he's going to keep asking me if it's done. So it turned out to be, even the subject matter turned out to be an enormous blessing for me. Even before the book was written, having to talk to people about the way God acted in their life was a superb experience. But also, I learned to write. Because 
the book meant nothing to me. I, and when I was writing about Swami, oh my gosh, I was so nervous, you know, for a long time. It was so important to me to do it. But this was some strange assignment that he didn't want to finish, so I had to finish. And so, but I learned to write. Because, the, well, the ego was gone. I don't, egoless would be too strong a word, but I didn't have the same. It, it would, it's going to come out the way it came out. You know, I couldn't manufacture better miracles than I had, you know, which was part of the problem. I mean, the, I just, the only miracles I had were the miracles I had. What could I do? I couldn't have more people be saved in dramatic fashions from terrible deaths. I mean, it just wasn't there to, to do. So I was just going to write them up so I could say I'd finish the darn thing. But in the process of doing that, I discovered how to write because ego was not fighting me as it had prior to that. And then I discovered, this, was, this is very, very important, I discovered how Swami writes. And I don't want to say more than I actually know, but I sensed how Swami writes. At a certain point when I was working on that book and I just realized it's like you, you catch this wave and then you just write it. And then it tells you what to do next, and then you write it. And then I began to read his books, and I could see it. I could, it was almost, I could almost, like physical. I could see the wave, and I could see how he caught the wave. Because, you know, Swami's books are not always linear, by any means. But, you, but I could see that there was a thread. And that's why so often when people would criticize this, he, he was amazing about soliciting input, and wonderfully patient about receiving it and definite about whether he would actually use it or not. But often, people would take his writing apart not knowing what he was doing. They would analyze it from a completely different reality. But when I got into that myself, which, I mean, I wish I could say it's always there. It isn't by any means. But I could feel it. I remember I talked to him about it. Swamiji, I got it. There's a wave, isn't it? Oh, yeah. You just catch the thread and it carries you, especially in his later writing when he really began to just be a channel. So, step by step. But you should absolutely recognize that even though you're productive, um, the sodden of work has not been mastered yet. And because you have a job where you have a bad habit, it's a good sadhana for you. Yeah, and you'll gradually figure it out. But practice where it's easier is what I would suggest. Every time you feel that tension building in circumstances where you have the margin to experiment, um, then just experiment until you can kind of find it. And I would experiment with a lot of devotion. Uh, I would experiment with visualization. Um, You know, my hands were made for thee alone. You know, just like whose hands am I using? Whose inspiration am I using? Um, And there's this, you know, this odd law of spiritual life which is, uh, years ago in 1978 or 79 when Swami was teaching superconscious living in San Francisco and uh, I'll, I'll shorten this story but I was I, I had uh, I'd hitchhiked into that project is the best way to put it I was not invited into that project I volunteered and because I really wasn't supposed to be there he had to kind of keep me out of the actual project because he was building a, a center in San Francisco and I was not karmically meant to be part of that so he had to kind of keep me out of it um, so I worked with him a lot which you know was no hardship it took me it, it took me only later did I really see what was going on there 
But he also had me, he was making an album of solo chanting, and he had me be his recording engineer, which tells you how understaffed we were, because to make me... But that time, recording was reel-to-reel tape, and you turned it on, and he had a microphone in front of him. So it was a wonderful... And one night, I could not, I could not get the sound onto the tape, and I haven't the foggiest idea why. I just couldn't do it. And he was recording after his classes, like starting at 11 at night, and he was ready to do an hour of recording, and I couldn't make it work, and he went off to meditate for a while, and I still couldn't make it work. He kept checking back. You know, it's getting toward midnight. I called techie people. I looked through the manual. Nothing. Finally, I thought, oh, I think I'll ask God to help me. (laughs) Duh. And I said, Divine Mother, he wants to record. He's dependent on me. I'm in such a mess here. And then I undid every, everything that could be unattached. And then I reattached everything exactly the same. And it wasn't that I hadn't checked the connections. I just undid it. I prayed. I put it all back together. It worked perfectly. So when Swami came back, he said, what was the solution? I said, I asked his Divine Mother for help. I was so embarrassed. It had been like an hour and a half, and I finally did. The next night, he's giving this class in front of all these people. Asha has a testimonial, he said. I said, sure. I run up, and I, there I said, what? You know. He said, tell them what happened. So I told them basically that same story, and then I said, these teachings work, and God will help you if you remember to ask. And I've really been impressed all the years since then how often I struggle first and how long I struggle before I remember to ask. Writing very specifically, often I'll just be just completely lost and then it'll cross my mind. Master, how would you like me to say this? Swamiji, what is the answer here? And almost always, immediately I know. But in the interim period when I struggled, I I forgot to ask. I thought I was alone, having to figure this out. So that's a lot of it. You know, not only pray for the specific help of what you're doing, but pray to work calmly. Okay, Lord, I have a bad habit here, and you know you're going to have to really show me something new because this is the only way I've figured out until now. But that makes everything interesting. Then, then time doesn't matter because everything is interesting. Everything that we're doing is sadhana. Even the most unpleasant things are sadhana because they're unpleasant, and so you get to practice sadhana. Victor was out there weeding Swamiji's walkway. He was there when I left in the morning, and he was there when I came back in the late afternoon. Have you been here the whole time? Yeah. And I, I mean, I admired that. You were just pulling all the weeds out from under there. I remember Prakash, who many of you know at Ananda Village. He, he runs a lot of the heavy equipment. Now, he's always been a very... He has a tremendous amount of willpower. And the Crystal Hermitage, you know how you have to walk way down there now, and you you know, you go on a walkway and you go downstairs and so on. It used to be just a bare hill. Just take everything away. The dome was exactly where it is now and you just walk down a bare hill, just this little tiny path. Prakash got it into his mind that that wasn't really a good situation for Swamiji and he wanted Swamiji to have stairs. But we couldn't, nobody even thought of concrete or flagstone the way we made stairs was you leveled it off and you put a railroad tie in front of it. And every day, Prakash made one stair. No matter what, every day he made one stair. And then I, was, I often walked down there with Swamiji and 
you know, every day there was another stare. And I, I was so touched when Swami looked at those stairs and he said, Master would have liked Prakash. Just like that. Wow. You know, just a step at a time. That's all it takes. Hmm. Well, where do we go from there? <laughs> do we just stop? Maybe we just stop. I think when you hear the closing line, you stop. A few minutes early, but I think that's all right.